1: Today we're talking about the establishment war against trans people and against the LGBTQ civil rights organization Stonewall here in Britain. This is Pride Month. This is the one month of the year when, which is dedicated, I suppose, to the struggles of LGBTQ people uh, in terms of amplifying the voices of LGBTQ people, uh, looking at what's been won, but looking as well at how far there is to go. And during that month has so far been cele- celebrated in the British media by an all-out war against Stonewall, which is the main LGBTQ civil rights organisation in this country. Not just in the right-wing press, I should also emphasise the echoes with the nineteen eighties uh, and nineteen nineties um, media war against gay and bisexual people is disturbingly uncanny. Uh, back then, uh, it was um, gay people being sexual predators tick, uh gay people brainwashing children, tick, uh, biology is destiny, tick. Uh, that why should a majority have to redefine themselves for the whims of a tiny minority? Mm. Tick. Uh that this is actually defined by a mental illness, tick, that it's some sort of bizarre fetish, tick. It's the same, same songs being played all over again. And why it's so important we have this discussion is the anti-trans uh uh cult, I suppose, is quite an accurate way of describing them, the way they work in terms of very striking cult-like operation, online radicalisation, the uh, obsessive behaviour towards one of the most marginalised minorities in the country, very well organised, well resourced, well connected in the British media and in the British government, which I'm sure we will talk about. Now, I'm very, very honoured to be joined today by uh, Freddie McConnell, uh, who. Uh, has been someone I've worked with, actually, at the Guardian newspaper. Um, do check out um, Freddie's brilliant film about being a trans dad, uh, which is, uh, of course, I was going to say mermaids. What's wrong with me? Mermaids? What's wrong <laughs> no, me? the other one. The <laughs> <Hold> on. on. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: The Too many creatures. horse, uh, <laughs> which is a brilliant must-see. Um, and Can I just say, next- actually,
3: we, we have a screening of that. We have a screening of that at the end of the month. So go oh, on to Instagram and check check out. Oh, where?
1: Friends. Just explain 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 more quickly.
3: Um, it's being hosted by me and um, the Queer Birth Club, which is AJ, who's a uh, queer doula, and it's going to be actually raising money for a non profit that um, is being created to campaign for the rights of trans parents. So it's going to be a really great event at the end of the month. Instagram Fantastic. for details.
1: Fantastic stuff. Uh, we're also joined, of course, by Louis Asquith, who is a Uh, Brilliant lawyer and works at Mermaids. And for those who don't know about Mermaids, it is the charity which supports uh, trans children, trans young people in this country, which itself has been repeatedly on the receiving end of vicious and extremely coordinated attacks. Mm. So we're very glad to have Louis. And can I just start? Actually, I suppose that's not a personal question, it's a human question. Just explain what it's like amongst I suppose the trans and non-binary communities in this country. How are people feeling? What's the atmosphere? This is something obviously we don't talk about enough because the voices, which we're trying to rectify here, erased from this so-called debate, such as it is, um, are not being heard of trans and non-binary people. So who wants to kick off? How how do you how how are you feeling and how do you think people are feeling generally?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I don't mind uh starting, Freddie, if you want me to uh take the first punch, so I, I'll t- i talk about it from a personal perspective as well as a professional perspective. I've got the privilege of speaking to young trans people on a daily basis as well as their family members, um, whatever that means to them, their friends, siblings, primary carers. Uh, and let's start with them, it's, um, it's quite difficult to vocabularise the anxiety and distress that's being felt by the community at large at the moment. We are hearing on a daily basis of young people who don't want to leave the house, don't want to leave their room, don't, just don't know what to do. When they look outside, be it on the streets or on the screen, they don't, number one, they don't see themselves, but to layer that, they're seeing active hostility towards their identity and an active movement to trying to erase and extinguish their identity. It's creating confusion Uh, it's creating, as I say, mental distress, which then obviously has a domino effect on those that that love them as well. Um, And we're seeing the distress uh, moving outwards amongst their particular circuit, whatever that looks like to them. Uh, From a personal perspective, um, it's again, very difficult to vocabularise. I mean, I obviously work at a trans support charity as well as being a non-binary person. So there is, every day is very personal, um, as well as it being a a professional duty and responsibility to advocate and speak as effectively as as possible. Um, There are days where it's very, very difficult. There are days where you can't help but feel human, you know, humanly impacted by what you're seeing and hearing and, again, actively trying to push back against. Uh, specifically in relation to non-binary visibility, there's a particular difficulty there. There's still a lack of conversation, understanding. Similar vibe to I think what still exists around bisexuality as well. That kind of oh they're still making their mind up, they don't quite know who they are. It's is that kind of rhetoric that's still used. Say still like it's been going on a, a long time. As I say, the conversation really hasn't started. It feels like around non-binary identities there, which again that um, erasure creates a particular difficulty as well, not being seen and probably referenced a few times. The first, I believe the first step towards equality is existence of being seen to exist. I think a lot of non-binary people uh, feel as though they're not seen, they're not recognized um, in law, but socially as well. Mm. Uh, And again, that has a massive emotional, mental and physical impact. Mm. Freddie?
3: Yeah, I mean, echoing that sort of personal sense of um, total lack of power and um, just overwhelm. I, mean, I don't work on a day-to-day basis in touch with young people and families, which I can only imagine is just would make life infinitely, exponentially harder. It's hard enough just to be a person. Um, I think there was a sense when the trans moral panic began around sort of twenty sixteen. Uh, a sense of like, right, all hands on deck. What can we do? Let's organize. Um, Let's get our voices out there. And in 2021, and probably for the past year or two, I would say that has morphed into a sense of, um, I don't want to say defeat, but definitely like, okay, so we just actually need to survive. We need to preserve ourselves, our mental health, our energy. We're not going to engage. I think that's often reported on in the media as some kind of no platforming or i think that's just a kind of uh, it's a very cynical and inhumane take on this situation that trans people face which is literally just trying to get through each day and um, and knowing that if you go on the news or if you if you give your view it's uh, it's going to be twisted it's not going to be listened to um and actually we've got more important things to worry about like the fact that the nhs has just let its only contract with a surgical team providing lower surgery for trans men the nhs just let it run out so there's actually no surgical provision for that at the moment. And as it was, there was years long waiting list. So, you know, you have people literally, uh, you know, sort of in physical dire straits. And yet the media still wants to wang on about the, the debate and, and all this sort of stuff that is just, um, it's having a massively negative impact. But at the same time, it's not, it's not the reality of our lives. And yeah. it feels like a waste of energy when we have so little in the first place.
1: So let's talk about Stonewall. Stonewall, for those who don't know, is, as as I've said, the main LGBTQ civil rights organization in the UK and was founded in the struggles against Section 28, which, uh, under the Thatcher government, banned the so-called promotion of homosexuality in public sector bodies, not, le- not least of all education. So young LGBTQ children like myself got no LGBTQ education whatsoever as a consequence. Um, now, there's been this narrative spun by certain self-serving newspapers, which at the time hated Stonewall and gay rights, uh, that Stonewall has lost its way, uh, partly by signal boosting some founders who, in the tired old tradition of certain uh, a select few members of minorities who climb a ladder and then kick it from beneath them, very much against the will, I should say, of many of the other founders of Stonewall. But actually, for those who don't know about just a brief history of Stonewall. Actually, uh, to be honest, the easy thing to do would be to just talk about the great, amazing struggles of Stonewall over the years. But actually, Stonewall was quite a problematic organization before 2015. Um, It was dominated by, uh, I suppose, white, middle class, cis. For those who don't know, that means not trans. It means your gender identity corresponds with the gender assigned at birth. Um, uh, Men. And it didn't take... Uh, it wasn't trans inclusive and it didn't take seriously issues, for example, of racism, didn't even support equal marriage, which is kind of comical. In 2015, uh, Ruth Hunt, who is a cisgender uh, butch lesbian, uh, and, and this is important because she talk about, talks about how that identity was weaponized in the struggle, uh, made Stonewall trans inclusive. So it became an LGBTQ plus charity which, given the role of trans people at the Stonewall right itself, was long overdue, but also took seriously issues, for example, of racism, which is a big problem within the LGBTQ plus community and visibility of others. So I just want to talk, just, uh, I don't know who wants to kick off, because what we've seen is an assault on Stonewall from every single direction of the British media, um, every single day, media outlets, press, broadcast, relentless. And that this is that Stonewall and um, is attempting to erase the sex-based rights of women that's the assault that is being and and that this is uh, a misogynistic charity it's an anti-women charity so who wants to kick off in terms of the assault on stonewall and 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 the reality
3: i mean i've uh, written a bit about this and um thought a lot about it because i mean as a as a journalist i've just been absolutely blown away by the lack of actual journalism and reporting around this. It seems to have been spot, I mean, obviously certain sections of the press are constantly looking for opportunities to to attack trans equality, to undermine the idea of trans people being taken seriously and given equal rights in society. We expect that from them, right? So when uh, Matthew Paris, one of the Stonewall co-founders who in the past has said that travelers should not be allowed to live the way they live and that the hijab should be banned. And, you know, he's an ex-Tory MP. When he says, oh, maybe uh, trans people uh, don't deserve equal rights, obviously, that's not very surprising. And and we don't tend to take Matthew Parris that seriously as a kind of liberal commentator on the way that society should be. And then that's followed by our so-called Equalities Minister, Liz Truss, urging people to pull out of the Stonewall Diversity Champions um, program. You know, Liz Truss, who is a well-known ally of the anti-LGBT and anti-climate change science Heritage Foundation. We Again, we kind of expect that. It's really um, painful because obviously those voices get heard very loudly and it's damaging to the community. But it's actually, it was at the point when left-wing outlets and journalists started repeating this baseless claim against stonewall without any original reporting or scrutiny that's when i sort of thought oh god this is this is almost like a step further into this hell of um of anti-trans moral panic in the uk that we've seen for so many years um yeah, when, when all journalistic standards just disappear. I mean, the claim that's been repeated over and over again is that Stonewall gave, quote, incorrect and potentially illegal advice to members of its diversity champions program. And that was said in a report uh, commissioned by the University of Essex. And so obviously that's a serious claim that needs to be investigated, Um but no journalist seems to have done the investigating. They've just repeated it. Stonewall has denied it, obviously. And actually, as soon as you start looking into it, there are multiple legal judgments, including one from as recently as May in the High Court, that should be reassuring to anyone who thinks that this advice was incorrect or potentially illegal that actually it's not, and that Stonewall have not done anything incorrect or potentially illegal. Their guidance is based on guidance from the uh, the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission. And that's it. There's nothing to it. I mean, when you get into the detail of what they were accused of in terms of it was the use of language, it's Stonewall guidance and um, EHRC guidance uses words like trans or gender identity instead of the legally correct um, gender reassignment or transsexual. Mm. The guidance doesn't use that language because it's not really in common usage anymore. It's not necessarily going to be understood. It doesn't include, um, obviously, uh, non-binary people who are protected by the Equality Act as well. That seems to be the crux of this potentially illegal claim. We know it's not illegal. They keep saying it is. They're trying. It's wishful thinking on the part of so-called gender critical feminists. They are trying to embed this narrative that... um, that by kind of using words like gender identity and trans that is stonewall's campaign to undermine women's protections under the equalities act i mean really like that when you get down to kind of what the actual accusation is it's shockingly baseless
1: um mm. yeah,
2: yeah <laughs> i mean I think so.
1: on- yeah go go go, go so
2: yeah just to, like, develop that a little bit more i suppose i mean we've seen over the past few years they're running out Uh, the drilling of this idea that women's rights and trans rights are at odds with one another, which is wrong, it's incorrect Um, as a matter of law uh, and, and, you know, socially. And I think the media has played an inherent part in drilling that erroneous idea. Mm. This Stonewall uh, campaign that's happening, uh, anti-Stonewall campaign that's happening, is adding to that it's pushing again this idea you have to choose one or the other you have to choose one or the other no that is wrong that's just incorrect and i mean when you actually just step back the idea that an lgbt civil rights organization is inviting organizations to be as inclusive as possible i mean for goodness sake i mean of course they're going to and absolutely they should i always say the equality act 2010 allows for organizations to be as inclusive as they want to be there are areas of, of legal questions within the act that come from it. Absolutely. So that's that's common law. That's how it works. But certainly there are areas of ambiguity that invite inclusivity. And I think that's something that needs to be remembered is that, you know, we have organizations such as Stonewall who have a responsibility to try and create a more inclusive country. And that's what they're doing with their diversity champions program. Um, But but certainly, you know, it it didn't surprise me when this came through, because again, it's just a a recycling of this erroneous idea, which, can I say, should have been stamped out very quickly early on as erroneous and a shadow debate, because let's not forget the pressure of this idea really started developing post-GRA, the Gender Recognition Act consultation for England and Wales, July 2018, the idea that the GRA impacted on the Equality Act uh, legislation really started hammering through, coming through, and created this shadow conversation that has now, that wasn't stopped, which it should have been stopped, because, I, you know, I can't say enough, it's just a separate conversation entirely, but it's developed into what now is felt and perceived, understandably, by people just looking on as being related to that conversation and it's developed again into this war of you've got to choose women's rights or trans rights which side are you going to be on that classic rhetoric of us and them that's been used throughout history in relation to different marginalized communities
1: yeah. i mean building on that so we've had the recent maya fullstater ruling and now Louis, I'll, I'll defer to your because it's very important we obviously get the legal stuff correct um uh, so I want to just tell tell me what the significance, because there was a lot of, obviously, when the response came through, which was on my phone suddenly got push alerts from every media organisation in the country. Yeah. So obviously, so just give us a bit of background. What is the case?
2: Mm.
1: What is the ruling? And what is the significance?
2: Yeah. So um, may have false data, Forstater- um was essentially her her case is that through well I'm I'm gonna give you sort of a really sort of clear cut uh simple Trincy. version. But yeah. So yeah. uh a con May of contract was not renewed. She worked for a company which is the defendant uh in this case and she was saying the her contract was not renewed as a result of her gender critical beliefs and was claiming uh, discrimination on that grounds. Now, a part piece of legal context, I suppose, is that within the Equality Act, uh, philosophical belief can be protected. And the question was, well, is a gender critical belief, the belief that sex is immutable, that someone cannot change their sex, is that a protected belief under equality law? This went to the uh, tribunal of first instance, and the, the Court of First Instance decided that uh, Mayor Data's view was essentially, well, there is a, a fantastic quote that I won't try and say verbatim, but it said it was not worthy of respect within a democratic society or something like that. The Court basically said that it is not a belief that's worthy of respect. It's not a belief that is protected. Mayor Data appealed this. Um, and so essentially for for people who don't know what that means, if if you take a case um, or if you're a defendant in a case and you don't agree with the first decision, you can then say, I don't agree. I want a higher court to look at this. So that's what we have just had the decision from yesterday, uh, whereby the uh, appellate court, the, the court of appeal basically said um, that looking at the law, gender-critical belief is one that is a philosophical belief that is protected. Now, what's the absolute crucial point here is that that was immediately, and probably Owen, you saw this immediately with all, you know, uh, media sources coming through, it was pushed as this idea that suddenly Mayor data's conduct that might have been Uh, manifested by that belief was also lawful so this idea that you can misgender somebody if you have a gender critical uh, belief which is completely wrong all that's been decided here is that the belief itself and there are many uh beliefs out there that you know we all we might disagree on certain beliefs that are protected by the Equality Act there are many beliefs out there this is one of those beliefs that is protected that does not mean that you can use that belief to then instigate unlawful harm harassment victimization discrimination etc so this is the second part of the case that now is the most crucial for trans individuals in that insofar as um, if may false state which I believe she is going to uh, reinstate the the claim that the decision not to renew her contract was as a result of her gender critical uh, beliefs, and that uh, claiming that that was an act of discrimination, the actions that were inherent within within that, so the, the acts that were inherent in illustrating her gender critical beliefs, so the likes of misgendering and the social media posts that she published, if it is decided, I suppose, that mayor datas conduct um, was, or if the employer is seen to have been uh, seen to have not renewed the contract as a result of those beliefs, and that was uh, believed to be a discriminatory act. What that will mean for the transgender community is that it provides a, a ticket, I suppose. The risk is that it provides a ticket for individuals to say transphobic. Give transphobic commentary, say transphobic things to trans colleagues, members of staff, publish transphobic material online, and therefore be there to be no um, uh, uh, consequence for that. So the appeal yesterday was an important decision. Um, It was a decision that, uh, as I say, decided that a gender critical belief is one that is uh, protected by law but that absolutely does not mean that those who who hold that those beliefs can then go on and do and say what they want and this is the 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 fear that we saw I don't know whether you saw it Freddie and I'm sure you did as well Owen the fear that came through from the community was that does this mean that somebody can misgender me does this mean that my colleague can essentially say transphobic stuff to me and that i i can't do anything about it absolutely not and if you are a trans person listening to this please if you're going to take one thing away from this conversation it has to be that the case yesterday does not provide a ticket for you to be victim to transphobic abuse
1: and uh, just just building on this as well um one of the repeated claims made by anti-trans activists is that they speak on behalf of women as a whole, mm. um, and I just think it's important just to inject a bit of what the polling actually says. Just quickly at this point, so a YouGov poll earlier in this year asked what is the most legitimate way to define someone's gender. Forty-five uh, percent say the gender they identify uh, as now and. Uh, 17% physical characteristics at birth. So it's 45% say gender they identify as now. That rises to 52% amongst women and it decreases, unfortunately, to 37% amongst men. Mm. Uh, is a dr- transgender woman a woman? All voters, 51%. Amongst women, that rises to 57%. Amongst men, that falls to 45%. Is transphobia a problem in the UK? This was a poll by Savanta Comres. All voters say 46% yes, 30% no. Amongst women, 50% say yes, 22% say no. Amongst men, unfortunately, more evenly divided. 41% say Mm. transphobia is a problem, 39% disagree. Should trans women be able to use women's toilets? All voters, 46%, say yes. Amongst women, it's women's toilets we're talking about here. Amongst women, it's 54% say yes, 24% say no, Amongst men, not their toilets. 38% say yes, 37% say no. Um, uh, and uh, finally, because there's, there's, there's lots, well, just a couple of final ones. Does allowing trans women to use women's spaces present any genuine risk of harm to women? All voters, uh, yes, 32%, no, 39%. But amongst women, 28% say allowing trans women to use women's spaces does not Uh, So it does provide, present genuine risk of harm to women. That's 28%. 46% say no, it doesn't. Amongst men, 37% say it does present genuine risk of harm. 31% say no. And finally, should a person be able to self-identify as a gender different to the one they were born into? All voters, yes, 50%. Amongst women, it's 57%. Amongst men, 43%. Now, I should say, it's not for... uh, it, the minority rights are not subject to the whims of the majority, and uh, you know, gay rights. If you look at the polling in the nineteen eighties, mm. was far more catastrophic for gay. Mm. Two thirds thought homosexuality right? wrong, um, but it is interesting, Freddie. Yeah. What do you, do you not find that it's just really striking? Transgender is disproportionately, very significantly, a male problem in this country. Trans mm. uh, trans people are far more likely to be accepted by cisgender women. What is this telling us in terms of who's been speaking on behalf of who?
3: well, it tells us what we've been saying already, which is that all of these uh journalists, so-called journalists and politicians and uh loud um anti trans people on twitter mostly that's where they are that's where they're to be found are wrong, and they're lying when they say that they're speaking on behalf of people, and it's a it's a very serious quote toxic debate and it's very important that we just keep banging on and on and on about it and every Sunday we need big stories and all the broadsheet newspapers I mean it's just uh they're just in they're just indulging themselves um in in this sort of bizarre obsession they have with semantics and um yeah and a kind of non-intersectional outdated so-called form of feminism I mean I think um, you know, those those sort of British Attitude surveys, surveys have always been positive. Um, that's nothing new. They're consistently positive. They're sort of becoming more positive over time, which is great. It suggests that this big debate um, isn't having a huge impact outside of this media bubble. Um, I also think it's worth pointing out that a lot of people, when they're asked that question about, like, should people be able to self-identify their gender? What does that mean? <laughs> you know, I would struggle to explain exactly what that means i can tell you sort of in a practical sense that trans people have always self-identified their gender uh a minority of trans people in the uk have a gender recognition certificate and we know that's because well partly because they're sort of just irrelevant to living your everyday life um and Mm -hmm. but more so i think because people it's they're Well, it was very expensive. It's still very demeaning as a process. It's very complicated. Um, And so most people just don't do it. And you can change your passport with a simple letter from your doctor. You know, you don't. I think this idea of self-identification has been, as with everything else in the debate, that's kind of where the narrative is set by anti-trans people. It's been twisted. It's been taken out of context. It's lost all meaning, except as a sort of stick to smack trans people with Mm. um and yeah it's uh i mean i mean i'm I'm sure louis would agree at this point it's not surprising that those those um surveys you know we come out pretty well we all know that it it never it never gets through it never never seems to make a difference to the the public conversation we're having i mean if i can just go back to the forstata um judgment i think I've, you know, what Louis was saying about this is what's been decided. It's it's the fact that the belief is protected. But what we don't know is whether Forstatter will win in a kind of redo of her tribunal on in, with this new context of gender critical mm. beliefs being protected. That's the fear that somehow having now a protected belief will give um, people like her permission to act out those beliefs that would result in discriminatory behavior, abuse and harm and all these things that are um, ruled illegal under the uh, Equality Act. Actually, in the aftermath of that decision, I found the reaction mostly reassuring. I mean, not from the obvious places, um, you know, not from certain newspapers. But if you heard uh, this morning on Radio 4, um, there was a brilliant interview with Helen Belcher, a uh, poly- uh, Lib Dem politician, uh, trans woman, trying to sort of inject some calm and um, mm. I- I- into the conversation, despite being kind of prodded by the the host to to say something um, inflammatory or something. But then there was also an interview with Baroness Faulkner, who's the head of the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission. And she went out of her way multiple times to remind people that, yes, the judgment says that gender critical beliefs are protected by the Equality Act, but they absolutely do not mean that you can misgender trans people with impunity or that you can do anything um you know you can hold those beliefs privately, but in certain contexts like at work and in public spaces, the law says you keep them to yourself mm. and um and people were very disappointed in the commission when they intervened on behalf of forced data in the case, so it is genuinely reassuring to hear the um Baroness Faulkner going on and um sort of reminding us what this judgment means and what it doesn't mean. And that applies not just to trans people with a GRC, um, which again, anti-trans people would have you believe it's only those people there, like the real, the proper, the legal trans people. Baroness Faulkner reminded us that the Equality Act protects all trans people, non-binary people, whether they are intending to transition are partway through their transition, whether they have tr- fully transitioned as far as they're concerned and whatever that transition looks like to them. Um, so I think we, for any people out there who are feeling really panicked by this current situation, like you needn't be, the law is there for you as much as it is for anyone else. Louis, it's
1: interesting. I-, I
2: sorry I was going to say I think talking about the panel I mean for those who don't um know what we mean when we talk about that so if a a trans person brackets noting that non-binary people don't have access to legal recognition at the moment close brackets if a, a trans person who is over 18 years old uh, decides to apply for a gender recognition uh, certificate um they have to apply to a panel so it's a, a panel of what feels is essentially strangers they're identified as uh Uh, it's not identified as uh, earth experts um, but it's essentially for the person applying. it's a panel of strangers that are there to decide whether you uh, satisfy being a man or a woman enough to be legally seen as such and you have to offer evidence and it just makes you think imagine if everybody had to do that you know cisgender or transgender i mean what would you what would you offer as your evidence you know like if you actually think about the the practice it's an interesting question, though, right? Because this is what a trans person sitting at their desk, you know, wherever they are, sit down, right, what can I pull together to illustrate my masculinity, my femininity? I mean, goodness, you know.
1: Yeah, I'm, and, of course, I could provide ample evidence for how I abide by whatever cliched masculine norms they would, yeah. they would offer. Anyway, um, in terms of, well, let me talk about children and young people. Um, I'll start with you, Louis, Louis, about, so we've had, again, I mean, look, there's about 50 different simultaneous moral panics going on here, but obviously focusing on children, on young people, and this particularly focuses on Tavistock Clinic, which uh, is an NHS service, uh, which exists in order, for example, for young people who are, uh, and children who are who are trans, who are referred there to get the support mm-hmm. that they need. Um and uh some of those may be gender non conforming but not trans, but they go and get support and advice. Some of them can then go on to transition um uh to the gender that reflects their actual uh, true their, their actual gender mm-hmm. um, so let just t- tell us about the the kind of what's happened with Tavistock. But also the myths, because basically Mm -hmm. the way it's been portrayed by a lot of the media is essentially that non-conforming children, of which there have always been gender non-conforming children, and people will talk about... I was a tomboy when I was a kid or I'm a boy and I played with dolls when I was a kid. I would have been, if this was, you know, I was now in the here and now and not 30 years ago, they would have made me trans. And uh, that's not, you know, some, some, some girls are butch. Some men have what are deemed effeminate characteristics. Let children be children. Why are we trying to encourage people to trans their children? And I mean, the, the more ludicrous, I'm not just say it. I know I'm just presenting the arguments for you to uh, rebut, but I, I do think one of the most ludicrous arguments I've ever heard in my entire life was the argument that homophobic parents are trying to so called trans their children because they prefer their child to be trans rather than gay and cisgender. And anyone who knows anything about homophobic people know that the idea they would be homophobic but accepting of trans people is probably one of the most ludicrous things I've ever seen. The reason that so many people are homophobic, of course, is precisely because they're angry at their child not conforming to gender norms. And the the biggest betrayal possible as they see it of, say, their boy of being a man is being gay so being trans is obviously a bit further down the line uh, as they would see it so yeah louis just tell me about what's happened with tavistock and let's talk about the actual reality the actual real challenges mm. that tr- trans children and young trans people face in this country compared to the coverage as many people watching and listening to this will know yes yeah. yeah
2: great okay so um the tavistock just because i'll, I'll use different uh use of the language so I'm just going to quickly give a, a briefing on that. So the Tavistock is essentially the trust that commissions what I'll refer to as the Gender Identity Development Service acronym GIDS. So GIDS is essentially the main service uh, in England and Wales um, that offers uh, support, majority of which is emotional support to young people who are dealing with gender dysphoria, which may be social dysphoria, so the feeling of going outside uh, or online and someone interacting with you in a way that creates a, a dysphoria, uh, as well as bodily dysphoria, so a physical attribute that creates a distress internally. Um, so maybe dealing with dysphoria, so maybe gender exploring, uh, gender non conforming, but remembering, as you've already pointed out, Owen, that some. Gender people can also be gender non-conforming so it's not a direct connotation to being trans is gender non-conformity but certainly some trans people are gender non-conforming also um so the the service is is there as i say prim- primarily to offer an emotional support to the young person and their primary carers to discuss uh, and explore with them what they're feeling and going through and for some young people uh, who are dealing with bodily dysphoria uh, as they enter puberty and are, what you call a, a tanner stage two so typically when breast buds might be developing underarm hair might be growing if a young person who is and this is never for prepubescent young people uh, so a young person who's going through puberty is essentially uh, recognized as an individual who is going to have a puberty that will exacerbate that distress They may then be referred on to an endocrinology service for a a consideration around puberty blockers, which typically uh, is a a form of of healthcare that pauses puberty, stops a puberty, that again is causing a distress. That's a really quick fire kind of overview as to what the service offers. The predominant uh, time that's taken once you're in the service, and I'll come to the, uh, you know the, the bit before that um is the conversation so consultations typically between four and six consultations that will last several several months i support young people who have been having them for several years even um but the the main uh i suppose issue that we hear on the front line at mermaids is the waiting times to even get through the door so we are talking, I mean, I spoke to someone just yesterday who has been waiting over three years for their first appointment still. And we know, you know, the NHS constitution has a, a max of 18 weeks. Now enough we caveat, like they saying, there are other areas of healthcare that also aren't meeting that criteria. But certainly, you know, two, three years is now the standard time for a young person, for a young person to have to wait before they see someone for the first time, which is absolutely, extraordinary and not good enough for all that time you've got a young person who is who may be going through puberty a puberty that may be creating that distress that we've talked about Um, and where do they go so they're often referred to cams uh, which is the child and adolescent mental health service that also has a two to three year waiting list so the pressure is then put on organizations like mermaids gendered intelligence transactional uh, to offer this support to these individuals whilst they're going through this, this waiting time. So you've got that period, then once you're through the door, if you get through the door, because some people then reach the age of adulthood before, before they've even seen someone, so they have to move on to the waiting list for the adult service, which again is two to three years. So some people, and you know, these, I've dealt with uh, young people and now adults who haven't ever seen a an expert to help them because of these waiting periods. Once they're um, in the system, on the books, etc., then that process starts of, of consultation. Now, the uh, it would be remiss of me not to address the recent case uh, of Bell and Tavistock, which came through um, in December 2020. Uh, which essentially that case. Uh, decided, I encourage you have anyone listening to this to go actually read the judgement, um, or oh, there's a summary as well if you don't have the time to read the full thing. Um, but uh, essentially Bell, which was extraordinary, decided that for a, a young person who had been recommended puberty blockers this might sound okay, I feel like I'm getting feedback a little bit.
1: No, no, no we can hear you perfectly. Sorry.
2: Okay. Uh, so a young person who's been um referred for puberty blockers. Even if you've got the clinician who's saying, this is in the best interest of this young person, you've got a young person assenting saying, yes, this is what I want, and of which many of whom may be Gillick competent. Uh, And primary carers who are also consenting to their child having this treatment, this judgment basically said that it's still necessary for that young person to obtain a court order before they can access that treatment. And that's the case also for 16 and 17 year olds, which in common law, 16, 17 year olds are presumed to have the capacity to make their own healthcare decisions. I cannot emphasise how extraordinary, I keep using that word, but it's the only word that fits really, this is. It's particularly unique, and we're dealing with essentially a population of young people that are being treated completely differently as a result of their transgender status. Um, Then we moved into March of this year and we had the decision of AB and CD or BCD. And that case decided, and this was in the family court, decided that those with parental consent could, uh, parental responsibility could consent on behalf of their child. Uh, which was a huge relief to a lot of, ch- to a lot of young people as well as, as primary carers. Although it's notable that that doesn't help those who don't have the support at home, because let's remember that a lot of young people still don't have the support at home and live in hostile environments. But that uh, judgment provides a lot of relief to those supported households as a way to describe them. And yet on the ground, we're still not seeing the uptake of that decision. So what I'm hearing every day at Mermaids is, well, yeah, this decision's happened, but I'm still, my child is still not accessing their treatment. We've had various NHSE uh, updates and amendments. We are in complete limbo. And we are in a crisis right now in respect of, well, I know healthcare more broadly, but focusing in on, on trans healthcare, We are in a crisis. We have a population of young people who are simply not accessing care. They are being made to have to think of alternative, potentially unsafe alternatives as a result of a lack of access. It's simply not good enough.
1: Freddie, just, just building on that, and that was extremely comprehensive, as we'd expect from... but what talk about you know maybe touch on your own lived experience but talk about you know that mismatch between the way the experiences of trans children and young people are portrayed versus the actual realities in the modern UK
0: if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
3: Well, I think probably the biggest misconception is this idea that's constantly put forward um, and was massively amplified by what during while the Bell-Tavistock case was going on, that kids are being rushed. That's a word we often hear, rushed. It's a word that's used by you know, places like Newsnight when they're dedicating inordinate amounts of airtime to this um to what they would describe as like trans children being rushed through the service and and being you know transed by their parents their homophobic parents um so and i think every you know as louis alluded to and and has been my experience as well i've never spoken to a trans person who experienced kids um like that at all it's the opposite in every in every conceivable way and not only does it take a long time to get through the door as we've saying 2 to 3 years once you're through the door it's all about talking exploring it's child led and actually it's it's um more than that i spoke to a family recently who were in limbo before um when the bell judgment had come out and before this one that uh, partially reversed it to do with parental consent they described being effectively um, dissuaded, whether it was in a sort of therapeutic way by uh, doctors testing, by sort of discouraging and saying, you know, we just wanna push, we wanna put up resistance to this idea to make absolutely sure, you know, it's it's so overly cautious to the point of potentially, well, to me at least seeming harmful to be not just listening to a young person's potential doubts, because lots of trans people do have questions and do go through periods of needing to think really long and hard about these decisions, not just listening to that, but actually provoking it and triggering it and making these uh, kind of gaslighting, I suppose is the word, Um, which just seems like a bizarre therapeutic approach in these situations. And again, so far from um, this, this media narrative of, of rushing people that it's, You know, you don't know whether to laugh or cry because you. I could just imagine what these. I can only imagine what these kids are going through. I didn't have any personal experience of kids. I was one of those trans people that didn't hear the word trans until I was a young adult, and so couldn't sort of imagine what that could be or the the possibilities that that lay in store for me. And I eventually did come across that information. Thank God. Um, I mean, I suppose I could speak briefly. One, One of the things that is often talked about in the media and it's also talked about by doctors who aren't very knowledgeable on this subject is this whole idea of trans children having to choose between pausing puberty, um, or having a family one day. And that is again, a, a very, very upsetting thing to hear being talked about in such an ignorant way. It's just not true. No young person should be presented that those two options. I mean, that's an impossible decision to make. You you do not know when you are, you know, y- young, a child, what you want to do when you grow up. No one does, let alone queer young people who are only just beginning to discover what their actually their options actually are. They shouldn't be presented with that option. They don't have to be because they're not risking fertility. That all the evidence suggests um, that they are not risking their fertility. That. There are, you know, people with precocious puberty, um, young people with intellectual disabilities have been using puberty blockers for a long, long time. It's not an experimental treatment. When they come off puberty blockers, um, natal puberty continues um, as it would have done otherwise. You know, uh, fertility matures. There are also options for fertility preservation. Trans adults are still being told that, you know, trans men are being told that if we, or trans masculine people, if we start testosterone, that's it. We can't have biological children. How are NHS doctors still allowed to tell us that? Not only is there no evidence for it, there never has been. There is increasing evidence for it not being true, that the NHS seems to just want to ignore wholesale. I mean, there are so many mini scandals within this massive transmoral panic scandal it's just exhausting to talk about, but you know, I get. I guess I just want to use this moment to speak to any trans people out there, any parents of young trans people who are being told this. It's not true. It's not true. It's, it's not true. Your child doesn't have to stress about their future options for making family um, when they're going through, you know, enough stuff already to do with gender dysphoria and trying to get treatment.
1: And I'd say one of you know, the important things about doing this is that people watching who are, Trans listening or watching, getting this sort of reassurance, I hope, makes a huge difference to, to people. Um just another I mean, just quickly as well, link linked to what we were just talking about, is one of the things that we've seen, not least because of the recent Tabasco case, is a focus on so called detransitioners. And obviously people who detransition, that's a valid experience. And there was erasing people who detransition, but The point is not to, I mean, well, look, the statistics show this. So, for example, of the 3,398 trans patients who had an appointment at NHS Gender Identity Service between 2016 and 2017, less than 1% said in those appointments they had experienced transition related regret or had detransitioned. And I do think this is strong. And the reason I say this is because I do think that, well, there are very strong parallels between anti abortion activists and anti trans activists. And there's often, obviously, just a direct overlap. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's some of the same people taking the same, uh, taking the action, these actions, took actions against abortion rights. But so, for example, one study in the United States said five years after having an abortion, over 95% of the women said it was the right decision for them, which obviously is overwhelming, but there's still so-called abortion regret. Now, obviously, the vast majority of people would not say that we, they would say that's a valid experience, of course, that we wouldn't go, those who, have experienced abortion regret is an argument to unpick the right of women to choose and have autonomy over their own bodies, which is how the detransition argument, of course, has been used. Mm. I just think it's quite, just quite a striking um, parallel, and I do think as well the parallel is anti-abortion activists tend to focus on what they find are the most extreme, unrepresentative examples or or just unrepresented examples of or the more more morally complex areas as they would see it to push their opponents on the defensive with abortion, for example, it's late stage abortion of disabled fetuses. And the point is they're trying to unpick the whole thing by trying Mm. to pick on what they see as the most vulnerable aspects. And it's just, anyway, it's the same parallel. Yeah. Just just on that, I mean, you might might have thoughts specifically on on that point about how the the detransition experience is used, but also just because I know we're running out of time, um, it would be also interesting to talk, partly you're here, Freddie, of course, the lack of recognition for trans birth uh, parents, and also, Louis, because you're here, uh, the uh, lack of recognition for non-binary people. So just either of you, pick and choose.
3: I have a thought on the, on the <laughs> de-transition. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to stay on this topic for a second. I mean, I think the way it's talked about hides, uh, obscures the fact that within that 1% of people who report any amount of regret and or who go on to detransition, um, it's a fraction of that 1% who do so because they realize they weren't trans um, or who had sort of, quote, made a mistake or would would describe their experience that way. The vast majority of those who have any regrets related to transition do so because living as a transitioned trans person, especially a trans feminine person in our society, as we've just spent the last hour talking about, is incredibly difficult. People lose their entire support structure sometimes uh, when they transition. It's a daily grind. So like again, it's just this massive, inhumane injustice to hold up sort of detransitioners as an argument for somehow trans people not being valid when actually those people who detransitioned did so because society made it virtually impossible for them to live. And then the other thing, um, just to say quickly on that, is that we need to distinguish when we're talking about people who have detransitioned because uh, their identity changes over time. We need to distinguish between those who do so and talk about it in a way that is not full of hatred and animus for transness and for the trans community and who who retain a sense of solidarity and love for their trans siblings, even though they actually realize later on that they weren't trans. There's a huge distinction between those people and the people who are effectively brainwashed by this conspiracy theory, this, you know, trans exclusionary radical feminist experience conspiracy theory about transness not being real. You can tell in the language that these people use whether they have been sort of recruited to use a word that um the turfs love to use into the anti-trans movement or not and i really worry about those people because they are vulnerable and they have been targeted by hateful groups uh, and and made to hate themselves in much the same way that the sort of ex-gay people are who you hear from you know disavowing their gayness and talking about and that's often has a religious bent and and the the kind of detransition community doesn't have that religious bent so much in the uk it's much more kind of um you know this this so-called brand of feminism so yeah I, i think we need to be aware of those people and whether they need us they probably need our support more than anyone
1: I mean, yeah, just on the anti-gay thing, the ex-gay thing, sorry, because it's a so-called movement in the United States, obviously, which is backed by religious fundamentalists. And they will talk about how I fell into sin. And then they will talk about how being gay opened up their lives to all sorts of other terrible horrors and traumas, uh, which, you know, things like alcohol and drug abuse, which, as any uh, as as anyone who actually knows the facts knows, is is linked to homophobic discrimination in society it leads to a heightened level of mental distress, which means more likely to self-medicate with an abusive relationship with drugs and alcohol. But you can just see the same thing because those ex, you know, it's the, you know they, they will use their own experiences and they're obviously a minority in order to, uh, as, as an attack on on the rights of of gay people. Anyway, sorry, yeah, Louis, on that and including, and we'll, I'll ask you obviously Freddie as well about recognition and transparency again, but Louis, on that and, and also on on, on non-binary people? And it just explained because some people won't know what being non-binary is.
2: Yeah, sure, I'll just I'll, I'll quickly add to the uh, the detransition point, but very quickly, I know we're limited on time and then I'll move to non-binary um, recognition. But yeah, I mean, uh, I echo Freddie's, Freddie's comment. I just wanted to make the point that when we're talking about um, trans healthcare, trans support, it's really important that we look through it from a trans lens and one, certainly one of the main um i suppose uh, difficulties uh, or perspectives that is creating the problem is looking through looking at healthcare looking at support through a assist normative lens so if we're talking about and we've uh, heard the the minister for equalities for example uh, quoting here talking about making sure that under 18s are protected from decisions that they could make that irrevers- that are irreversible in the future so this comes from the conversation around detransition. transition and as freddie said it's incredibly important that we uh, learn from those experiences remember actually that a lot of people who have detransitioned are not part of this idea of of you know this population of people being angry or suggesting that their experience should be used to oppress or restrict access to healthcare for those that require it, I think that's a misconception. Um, but when we're talking about irreversibility, making decisions that are irreversible, let's look at irreversibility from a trans perspective. So if you're asking a, a young person to be subject to a puberty that has been uh, recognized as causing a distress, that is an active decision to uh, it's an active decision also to say no you have to go through this puberty and at the end of it what do we have irreversible uh, sexual characteristics so when we're talking about trans healthcare what I always try and pull people to is when you're asking a question about uh, irreversibility reversibility um, make sure we're asking it from a trans perspective and looking at it from a uh, a trans lens it's the only way that we'll be able to create an effective trans focused system. Um, so I just wanted to add that. And then in relation to non-binary recognition, so for those that don't know, being non-binary, uh, is, well, non-binary is an umbrella term for an individual that doesn't exclusively identify as a man or a woman. Um, it can, uh, you know, be these very personal things. So what non-binary means to an individual uh, is very, you know, Everybody has their unique experience of it, so i 'm happy to give my experience my experience is that some days i am a gender don 't feel a gender at all. Some days I will be a man, some days i 'll be a woman some days i 'll flip between the two. My experience is quite a fluid experience; it can change on a daily basis. Sometimes I might have a particular identity for a period of time that then switches. So quite a fluid experience of it, but certainly you can't homogenize the non-binary experience. Um, but one thing we can say uh, for certain is that all non-binary people don't have access to legal recognition. Um, well, there's a case in the uh, judicial uh, system at the moment, and that's in relation to non-binary, uh, Recognition on passports—the case of Elan Kane. Uh, so please have a look at that if you're interested. So this is one, I suppose, one part of the puzzle. But certainly, I think we need to distinguish from legal recognition, and we've already spoken to today that legal rec- recognition is one thing, but social acceptance in wider society uh, is another thing. So being able to go to a restaurant and uh, you know not have to fear um, being labelled as either a sir or a madam. Um, that can, and if that happens, creating a dysphoria for the rest of the evening or having to travel home on a bus because there's just no toilets that make you feel comfortable. You know, these in general interactions are happening day in, day out um, and impact us on a daily basis. So I think when we're talking about non-binary inclusion, non-binary recognition, we have to look outside of the legal barriers as well.
1: But he just just quickly, because we are overrunning now, really. Uh, so had quick quick fire. Throw in the experience of being a trans parent, but just your thoughts. on, uh, I mean, you've obviously you've you've, you've you've had your little one that occasionally make it not an appearance, but you've had to juggle, juggle doing. Yes, <laughs> you know, me going off. <laughs> no, no, you done it in a very very sort of way. Uh, but you have had to juggle quite literally being a father with doing this uh, this interview. Um, but yeah, just in terms of recognition for for trans dads, and obviously your your own your own struggle there.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's so many angles to it. I suppose the the latest on my case um, where I was fighting to be registered as my kid's father or parent on his birth certificate is that um, we failed in the UK courts and we're now taking the case to the European Court of Human Rights, where it will actually meet up with similar cases, one from Russia and one from Germany and maybe even others, because this is becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue. Sweden is the only country in Europe that currently recognizes trans parents in their legal gender. Um, it's important to say that there's a real lack of clarity after the judgment, in my case, about whether the decision applies just to like a trans man like me who gives birth or whether it actually jeopardizes the legal recognition of all trans parents. There's some suggestion that um, the Gender Recognition Act does not extend to parenthood at all, which is effectively then saying to trans people, you can either have legal recognition or you can become a parent, um, which is, you know, I would then further say is de facto legal sterilization. Um, So it's still a really huge issue. And it's one that is also we are working towards sort of working towards a political solution on. I mean, (laughs) lol, during this government. But there are allies within government. There are there are allies in the opposition, I think would be nice to hear from them occasionally. Um, There are certainly allies in the Lib Dems. and yes, uh, as I said, this non- we're, we're setting up this nonprofit called Equality for Trans Families. It has very little visibility right now, but it, but it will increasingly. And actually, if I suppose I could use this opportunity to say, if that's something that you would like to help us do, we want to carry out research. We want to lobby. We want to create policy proposals because I think ultimately this will require a political solution, maybe as well as or instead of a legal one. Um, send me an email. Tell me how you can help. Give us give us money if you want to donate. That would be wonderful. Um, yeah, this is the fight is ongoing, and and we will get there eventually.
1: So I just want to say, <laughs> my kid like, is screaming at me. Bless. <laughs> well, it's good? To, good time to end then. So you can tend to the tend to, tend to the little one. Um, honestly, you were both absolutely fantastic. That was so comprehensive. We've gone through so much. I really hope for those who are cisgender that means. Your gender aligns, uh, your gender identity aligns with that which you assigned at birth, that this is educational, that you learn things that maybe you've seen lots in the media, heard lots going around, maybe in your workplaces, your communities, your family, that this answers some of the things that you didn't know about. And you will act, I hope, in solidarity with one of the most marginalized minorities in the country as they face a, a, a siege and attack from uh, every direction. And I hope that if you're trans, if you're non-binary, you, you've, you've listened to this or watched this and feel that there is support and solidarity there of which there are vast amounts, uh, not enough, uh, there must be more. And that's part of the reason we do these shows, but that that it is there and the support is there for you, you, you that you are loved and affirmed for who you actually are. And that there are people out there who will fight and struggle to make sure that you are loved and affirmed and supported for who you are. And just finally, there will be those who go, well, Owen, not very balanced. This is it. Only one side of the debate. How do you call that? Impartiality. I I don't pretend to be impartial, but anyway, but in terms of I don't have debates about racism. where I go, let's have the case for racism and the the case against racism. My view is unequivocally, that racism is a terrible evil which must be fought and defeated. And that's my view on transphobia, and that's why we've had this discussion. But the other point is, you're not exactly spoiled for choice there, are you? If you wanna hear transphobic argument, you can't move without hearing transphobia in this country. It is relentless. Every media outlet practically in the country And the whole point of this channel and podcast is to offer a balance to that. And that's what we've Mm -hmm. done, which is why you've heard far more facts and insight here from uh, both Freddie and Louis than you will get from years worth of media coverage in this country. So thank you so, so much to both of you. You're both fantastic. Do follow both uh, Freddie and uh, Louis, Freddie McConnell, Louis Asquith on social media and support Mermaids and support Freddie's work as we just said there. Lots of love guys thank you so much. Cheers Owen Thanks for listening everyone. I hope you enjoyed that Uh, do support us on patreon.com forward slash OwenJones84. Help us decide who we talk to, what we talk about the documentaries we do uh, and also on the supporter function uh, which you can see in the description and leave us five stars and a review it just helps other people listen Uh, and with that thank you so much speak soon